It's the 18th of March, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we're going to talk about the downside of TNF inhibitors, a few interesting observations in gout, and yes, kids do get COVID. And we're also going to preview the big month of April. It's all dedicated to PSA, psoriatic arthritis. That's right, PSA all the way. More on that later. Let's begin with a happy report about suicide from Medscape. You know, the Medscape people are notorious for doing these sort of annual reviews of how well we're doing or not doing, you know, how much money we're making, who's the happiest, um, you know, who's getting divorced more. And yeah, they got a survey about suicide. You know, they do have a large sampling of, I think, like 29 specialties and whatnot. And their annual suicide report, cue the music of MASH, um, is out. And, you know, it's really kind of sad. I, I almost didn't believe it, but I do believe their data. 10% of physicians have at one point or another contemplated suicide. And, boy, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that, you know, uh, contribute to this. Um, you know, it goes along with the staggering numbers on physician burnout. Um, who's high on the list? Well, according to them, uh, the highest on the list was pathology at 13%, surgery at 12%, oncology at 12%, infectious disease at 11 and emergency medicine at 11%. Who's lowest on the list? Well, yeah, you are the rheumatologist. Only 5% and only, lower, only one lower than you is the nephrologist. So I put this up there because I think it's sobering data. I put this up there because it goes along with the data that says we rheumatologists are pretty darn happy with what we're doing. Gee, we'd like to make a few more bucks, but, you know, maybe the offset here is worth it. Congratulations on being so happy. You know who's happy this week? The people at AbbVie. They got a call from the FDA um, two nights ago telling them that their drug upadacitinib, also called Rinvoke, has been FDA approved for use in ulcerative colitis. That's adults with moderate to severe active disease having failed or not able to take a TNF inhibitor. So UPA is used now in uh, along with other JAK inhibitors. Um, the starting dose here is 45 milligrams is the induction dose. And then the maintenance dose is said to be 15 milligrams, but there is a provision where patients can take 30. And that's like for recalcitrant disease or, or fistulizing disease or problematic disease, basically. This is surprising because, you know, anyone who's watched the Jack inhibitor wars, you know, at least in RA and most inflammatory arthritis, you, they all applied for two doses. They only got one dose. But now we're seeing higher doses being allowed for in atopic dermatitis, really? And now in ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis has always been a, a disorder that's hard to control and higher doses make sense. But atopic dermatitis, not sure I understand. And you know what's probably not far behind is the doses that will be approved for use in alopecia areata and alopecia universalis said that the usual doses don't work and that higher doses are needed, but more on that when that actually happens. Right now, those are trials that are in progress. 
So good news, but concerning news about the high doses. You know, we've talked a lot about high doses and potential problems there. Also coming from the FDA yesterday was a decision by the uh, Drug Safety Committee, Safety and Risk, and the Anesthetics and Analgesic uh, Advisory Committees met, and they had a hearing about IV tramadol. IV tramadol. I mean, when I wanted to take uh, tramadol for my knee replacement surgery, the surgeon laughed and said, <laughs> that's placebo. Well, you really, need a, you really need a pain drug. Well, there's a lot of controversy, I think, around Tramadol, it is a weak narcotic, um, and there's rising amounts of data about its potential for abuse and whatnot. Its schedule changes are changing in certain jurisdictions. And, you know, the world is on guard about narcotics, even poultry narcotics like Tramadol, and they got turned down. So when the panel voted, it was 14-8 against approval for IV Tramadol. Now, that is a recommendation that will go to the FDA, who will make a final decision probably within six to eight weeks. Um, you know, we as rheumatologists will often treat psoriatic arthritis who has psoriasis. And what's the one, you know, dictum that you've heard from the dermatologist? Don't do this. And it's usually don't use steroids. That's because if you use steroids in psoriasis, um, when you take them off, there's a horrible rebound and it's just not worth it and blah, blah, blah. And most rheumatologists I know treating psoriatic arthritis have commonly had to use low-dose steroids to get control of the inflammatory oligo or polyarthritis. Well, uh, we reported on this, I think, maybe last year that steroid exposure in psoriasis is not so bad. This is another meta-analysis of the same issue, looked at the risk of a flare of PSA or psoriasis following the use of systemic steroids, not topical steroids, systemic steroids. And they had 11 studies, 4 million patients, um, and basically what they showed was 10 out of 11 studies showed no increased rate of flares when they were exposed to systemic steroids. Now, again, these are meta-analyses and, and it's hard to make um, plan your life according to the results of a meta-analysis. It is the lowest level of data, but uh, I'm not going to change what I do when it comes to psoriatic arthritis. I do use low-dose steroids. Uh, I don't like to use them, but I sometimes have to. A Belgian study looked at the association. Now we're getting into what happens with when you use drugs. So steroids, good, nothing much. What about when you use TNF inhibitors? This is a Belgian study of almost 2,500 patients in their registry and almost 700 were treated with a TNF inhibitor. Out of that 700, four developed TNF inhibitor-induced sarcoidosis. This is what's called a paradoxical reaction. You know, you use TNF inhibitors to treat what? Ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease and psoriasis and sometimes sarcoidosis. But now there are these reports, as you know, TNF inhibitors can cause psoriasis, a 1 in 1,000 event. But now there are reports of sarcoidosis being induced in people who didn't previously have any evidence of a granulomous disease. And in this study, you know, the four patients, um, two had pulmonary sarcoid and hyaluradenopathy. One had Hereford syndrome and the other one had granulomas and hypercalcemia with some lung involvement. All of them resolved with steroids and discontinuation of the TNF inhibitor. Doesn't that prove the point that this was drug-induced? 
Hmm, is all I can say. Another uh, look at steroid uh, TNF inhibitors and what they may do comes from Korea. Uh, Korea is an endemic area uh, for when it comes to TB. Uh, and when you see TB, you're also going to see non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. That's called NTM. Uh, the United States risk of TB is about six cases per um, 100,000. And obviously it goes up a lot with TNF inhibitors. Um, but in Korea, the, 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 the region, uh, TB is endemic. So the population risk is about 300 per 100,000. And then again, if you use TNF inhibitors, it's going to go up further. Well, in this endemic area, they looked at the risk of developing MTB and NTM. It used to be called atypical mycobacteria. Now it's called non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. And it basically showed that they were both elevated um, in RA patients on TNF inhibitors. It basically doubled the population risk. Um, and I think the other teaching point here is that it's not just TB you worry about. It's also non-tuberculous mycobacterium. That includes, you know, um, MCAN-ZASI and Fortuitum and MAI and MAC infections, etc. So, again, in their um, population, 4,300 RA patients, 1,100 on TNF inhibitors, the NTM and TB rates were about 330 cases per 100,000. So, again, you should be worried about um, NTM in your RA patients or other patients taking TNF inhibitors. That is not an uncommon occurrence. Kevin Winthrop wrote about this um, long ago, showing that, there, in fact, there were more NTM cases associated with TB, uh, with TNF inhibitor use than there were TB cases. So there was a, a two nice reports from the CDC MMWR reports. One looked at basically the safety of the mRNA vaccines. Um, and if that comes from the, um, the, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, uh, and basically um, from 3 million doses, they had 300, 340,000 reported side effects. 92% of these were mild, 6% were serious without death. There were 1.3% deaths, none from anaphylaxis. So in the V-SAFE program, that's if you got the vaccine, especially a, a, a mRNA vaccine, they you signed you up for a V-SAFE and you get a text and you fill out how you're doing. They have over 7, 8 million reports in there uh, from the V-SAFE program. Half the patients had some kind of symptoms. But the good news is very, very, very few were serious or resulted in death. The other thing that makes me crazy these days are um, people who talk uh, with great certainty that kids don't get COVID. Well, again, this week, MMWR reported the results of a 99-county, 14-state um, surveillance system looking at uh, COVID hospitalizations amongst infants and children up to age Four, So that's ages zero to four, supposedly the people who don't get COVID, but they do. Yes, it's at a very low rate. So between March of 2020 and February of 2022, they have documented 2,637 hospitalized infants and children ages zero to four. 24% of them went to the ICU. You know what? It wasn't one group or one ethnicity or one race. They're all equally affected. And like adult COVID that gets hospitalized, 
There is often an association with comorbidity. 36%, 35% had comorbidities, at least one or more comorbidities. And there were 18 deaths. So bad things can happen. Thankfully, these are very low numbers. But to say that kids and infants can't get it, don't get it, won't get it, is just plain wrong. And again, remember, this is only a sampling of 14 states. Uh, we got two nice reports about gout. Um, I found one interesting. It was the a report of shrinking toes. And it mainly is a report of what happens to the first toe when you have uh, tophaceous gout in the MTP. You know, you get that scooped out lesion that at some point it may collapse and then it may shorten the bone. And so that toe ends up being shorter much shorter than it used to be and much shorter than the other digits next to it. In this particular study of 1,141 cases, they found 10 patients with shrinking toes, which means it's about 0.9%, less than 1%. It's always in patients with tophaceous gout, and it is in the place where they previously had lytic lesions. Look for it. It sounds cool when you say, hey, this is a case of shrinking toe syndrome. Someone, Your resident's going to think you made that up. Um, a report from, I think, Irish authors looking at, at data from two UK hospitals looked at gout that gets hospitalized. Acute hospitalization for gout, does it happen? Well, yeah, sure it does. In this time frame, I don't know what it was. It was probably, oh, it doesn't really matter. But basically, they had over, I want to say, 1,100 hospitalizations for acute gout. Um, and... Um, Overall, 23% of them were hospitalized, the patients who presented. Oh, no. So it's over 1,100 patients who presented to the emergency department. 23% of them got hospitalized for a mean of 3.6 days. Of those that were hospitalized, 10% of them had recurrent ER visits for, again, gout flare. So far, this sounds kind of normal, except the number of people getting hospitalized seems a little high to me. But the reasons why they're hospitalized, that was usually associated with age. Um, high CRPs, very high white counts, and presenting late at night. So maybe people can't make decisions late at night, or they become much harder. I don't know. But that's probably not why I, I reported this. I reported this for some of the disappointments. Um, in that cohort of, uh, of patients who were hospitalized, only 22% uh, were actually on urate-lowering therapy. Not very good. Moreover, when they followed up those people six months later, um, it did go up. It went up to 44%. But guess what? Very, very few were within target. So treat the target's a failure. In this cohort, only 9% were in, within their target. Um, in the United States, we'd say that's 6 milligrams per liter or less. Um, in the UK, they use 300 millimoles per liter or less. The other thing that happened with these people who came to the hospital very few rheumatology consults, very few synovial aspirates. Boy, we are failing in the management of gout on so many levels. Um, it's up to you, the rheumatologist, to teach the world and to take control of this. I know you only get 3% of the consults of people who have gout, but boy, everyone who believes they know how to manage gout probably needs to you know, step up. That's all I can say. I was surprised by a new report of low-dose recombinant IL-2 therapy in rheumatoid arthritis. IL-2, you say? 
IL-2 exogenously, as you know, act, activates T cells, um, and but it may activate Th17 cells, which would be bad for RA, and may activate or drive Tregs, which might be good in RA. So I would have guessed that this would have been a negative trial. I would have been afraid to do this trial, but they did this trial. It was um, a small trial, 40 patients, uh, RA, active disease on methotrexate, one group got placebo, the other group got seven doses given three times a week every other day as a subcutaneous injection, primary readout at week 12 um, while they were on therapy, and then 12 weeks off therapy. And guess what? The people who got methotrexate plus the low-dose IL-2 had better ACR20 responses. So there's no placebo here. This is open label. Um, the um, combination group had a 71% ACR20 at 12 weeks versus 43.5 in the just methotrexate only. And then that was maintained out to week 24. The gap was closed, but it was now still 76.5 versus 56.5, 20 points higher. Both those numbers were significant pair T-test probably. So I, this merits further study. Um, and it tells us we often don't know what to expect sometimes when we start to stimulating T-cells. Um, I found that surprising and potentially useful. Lastly, my last report has to do predicting the development of spondylitis in at-risk individuals. This is a, um, a 35-year study from Professor Vanderlinden and colleagues um, where they looked at 363 probands with ankylosing spondylitis and their first-degree relatives, 806 of them, followed them over time and found that roughly 26% of first-degree relatives who are B27 positive develop um, um, spondylitis, independent of radiographic uh, sacroiliitis, meaning they met criteria. Maybe the more important, and, and by the way, that number is what we've always said. You know, if you have B27 and you're just Joe Schmo in the population, your risk of getting spondylitis is less than 2%. But if you're a first degree relative of someone with AS and you're B27 positive, the number that's always been thrown out is a 20% risk. So this number sort of jives with the historic um, uh, research here. Now, what they found that was also, I think, maybe new here is that a, uh, acute anterior uveitis was seen in 38.2% of people who uh, ended up having ankylosing spondylitis. So that's one of their take-home messages. If you're dealing with a first-degree relative and they have new-onset uveitis, you should be screening them for spondoarthritis. Obviously, you should. B27 associates with axial disease. It also associates with uveitis, as you know, heart block, a few other things. But someone who presents with uveitis, you should be looking for uh, ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondoarthritis, whatever you'd like to call it. They did have a rule. In general, chronic inflammatory back pain was not predictive of progression in first-degree relatives. But if you had, they had a three-point rule. Um, chronic inflammatory back pain plus thoracic pain plus ventral anterior chest pain. Maybe the, the latter is enthesitis. Thoracic pain in those who are going to develop ankylosing spondylitis, I find it hard to understand. But, you know, they were vigilant in collecting data, and that actually had predictive value. So a nice report um, from our colleagues in Sweden. Um, that's it for this week. Go to the website, 
uh, check out this, the, the, this report. You can find the citations for whichever interests you the most. Um, be sure to um, send me your questions and ask Kush anything. You can record your question or case. Make it a short case. Make it a short question. And we'll actually play it here on the podcast. And lastly, the month of April is Psoriatic Arthritis Month on Room Now. We are going to supercharge the month in our coverage of PSA. You're going to be wondering, what's the deal with PSA? Our motto is PSA all the way. Can't wait until the month of April. Tune in for more podcasts. Bye.